This presentation is delivered by the Stanford Center for Professional Development. Okay, good morning. Uh, welcome to CS229, the machine learning class. So, what I want to do today is just go over, spend a lot of time going over the logistics for the class, and then we'll start to talk a bit about machine learning. Um, by way of introduction, my name is Andrew Ng, and I'll be instructor for this class. And um, so I personally work in machine learning, and I've worked on it for about 15 years now. And I actually think that machine learning is sort of, you know, the most exciting field of all of computer science. So, so, so I'm actually always excited about teaching this class. Um, sometimes I actually think that machine learning is not only the most exciting thing in computer science, but the most exciting thing in all of human endeavor. So maybe a little bias there. Um, I also want to introduce the TAs who are all graduate students doing research in or related to the machine learning and all experts in machine learning. Um, Paul Baumstock is, um, works in machine learning and computer vision. Um, Katie Chang is actually a neuroscientist who applies machine learning algorithms to try to understand the human brain. Um, Tom Doe is another PhD student, works in computational biology and in sort of the uh, basics, fundamentals of machine learning. Um, Zico Coulter is the head TA. Um, he's, TA he's head TA two years in a row now. Works on machine learning and applies them to a bunch of robots. And uh, Daniel Ramage is, um, because it's not here, Daniel applies learning algorithms to problems in natural language processing. Um, so you get to know the TAs and me much better throughout this quarter. But just from, you know, the sorts of things the TAs do, I hope you can already tell that machine learning is a highly interdisciplinary um, topic in which just the TAs are applying learning algorithms to problems in computer vision, in biology, in robots, in language. Um, and machine learning is one of those things that has had and is having a large impact on many applications. So um, just in my own daily work, I actually frequently end up talking to people like helicopter pilots, to biologists, to people in computer systems or databases, to economists, and there's sort of all, also you know, an unending stream of people from industry uh, coming to Stanford, interested in applying machine learning problems, interested in applying machine learning methods to their own problems. So. Um, yeah, this is fun. A couple of weeks ago, a student actually forwarded to me an article on, uh, in Computer World about the 12 IT skills that employees, that employers can't say no to. So sort of about the, you know, sort of the 12 most desirable skills in all of IT and all of information technology. Um, and topping the list was actually machine learning. So I think this is a good time to be learning this stuff and, and learning algorithms are having a large impact on many segments of science and industry. Um, I'm actually curious about something. Um, learning algorithms is one of the things that touches many areas of, of, of science and industries. I'm actually kind of curious, how many people here are computer science majors or in the computer science department? Okay, about half of you. How many people are from EE? Oh, okay, maybe about a fifth. Um, how many biologists are there here? Wow, just a few, not many, I'm surprised. Uh, anyone from statistics? Okay, a few. So where, where are the rest of you from? What, say again? ICME. ICME, cool. Civi and what else? Simsys, Convex Systems, yeah, cool. 
Kemi, cool. Aero Astro, yes, right. Yeah, okay, cool. Anyone else? Yeah. Pardon? MSNE. All right, cool, yeah. So, pardon? Endoship. Endoship. Oh, I see, industry. Okay, cool, right, great. Yeah, so as you can tell, so from, from, from the cross section of this class, I think we're a very diverse audience in this room, and that's one of the things that um, makes this class fun to teach and, and fun to be in, I think. Um, so in this class, we try to convey to you a broad set of principles and tools that will be useful for doing many, many things. Um, and every time I teach this class, I, I can actually very confidently say that um, after December, no matter what you're going to do after this December, when, when you've completed this class, um, you'll find the things you learn in this class very useful. And, and, and these things will be useful pretty much no matter what you end up doing later in your life. Um, so I have more logistics to go over later, but let's say a few more words about machine learning. Um, a few of the machine learning grew out of early work in AI, early work in artificial intelligence. And over the last, I want to say, last 15, over the last 20 years or so, it's been viewed as a sort of growing new capability for computers. Um, and in particular, it turns out that there are many programs, there are many applications that you can't program by hand. Um, for example, if you want to get a computer to read handwritten characters, to read sort of handwritten digits, it actually turns out to be amazingly difficult to write a piece of software to take, an, to take this input, an image of something that I wrote, and to figure out you know, just what it is, to translate my, my, my cursive handwriting into, um, in, into, into um, to extract the characters that I wrote out in longhand. Um, and other things, one thing that my students and I do is autonomous flight. So it turns out to be extremely difficult to sit down and write a program to fly a helicopter. Um, but in contrast, if you want to do things like these, to write, to get software to fly a helicopter, or have software recognize Hamilton digits, um, one very successful approach is to use a learning algorithm and have a computer learn by itself how to, say, recognize your handwriting. Um, and, and in fact, for handwritten digit rec recognition, this is pretty much the only approach that works well. And these are sort of applications that are hard to program by hand. Um, learning algorithms has also made, I guess, significant inroads in what's sometimes called um, database mining. Um, so for example, with the growth of IT and computers, um, increasingly many hospitals are keeping around medical records of you know, what sort of patients, what problems they had, what the prognosis was, what the outcome was. And taking all of these medical records, which started to be, started to be digitized only about maybe 15 years ago, um, applying learning algorithms to them, we can turn raw medical records into what I might loosely call medical knowledge, in which we start to detect trends in medical practice and even start to alter medical practice as a result of um, medical knowledge that's derived by applying learning algorithms to the medical no by applying learning algorithms to the source of medical no records that hospitals have just been building up over the last you know 15, 20 years in electronic format. Um, Turns out that most of you probably use learning algorithms, I don't know, I think half a dozen times a day or maybe a dozen times a day or more, um, and often without knowing it. So for example, every time you send mail via the US postal system, um, turns out there's an algorithm that tries to automatically write, read the zip code you wrote on your envelope. 
and that's done via a learning algorithm. So every time you send US mail, you're using a learning algorithm, perhaps, even, perhaps without even being aware of it. Um, similarly, every time you write a check, I actually don't know the number for this, but a significant fraction of checks that you write are processed by a learning algorithm that's learned to read the digits of so the dollar amount that you wrote down on your check. So every time you write a check, there's another little learning algorithm that you're probably using without even being aware of it. Um, if, you took, if you use a credit card, or um, I know at least one phone company was doing this, and, and lots of companies like eBay as well that, that do electronic transactions, there's a good chance that there's a learning algorithm in the back end trying to figure out if, say, your credit card's been stolen or if someone's engaging in a fraudulent transaction. Um, if you use a website like, like, like um, Amazon or Netflix that you know, will often recommend um, books for you to buy or movies for you to rent or whatever, these are other examples of learning algorithms that have learned what sorts of things you like to buy, what sorts of movies you like to watch, and can therefore give customized recommendations to you. Um, I don't know, just about a week ago, I had my car service, and even there, my, my, my car mechanic was trying to explain to me some learning algorithm and the innards of my car that's sort of doing its best to optimize my driving performance with fuel efficiency or something. So, so most, of us learn, most of us use learning algorithms, you know, half a dozen, a dozen, maybe dozens of times without even knowing it. Um, and of course, learning algorithms also doing things like giving us a growing understanding of the human genome. So if, if, if someday we ever find a cure for cancer, I'll bet learning algorithms will have had a large role in that. That's sort of the thing that Tom works on, I guess. Um, <clears throat> so in teaching this class, um, I, have, I sort of have three goals. Um, one of them is just to help convey some of my own excitement about machine learning to you. Um, the second goal is by the end of this clause, I hope all of you will be able to apply state-of-the-art machine learning algorithms um, to whatever problems you're interested in. And, and if you ever need to build a system for, write, for reading zip codes, um, you, know, you know how to do that by the end of this class. Um, and lastly, by the end of this class, I realized that only a subset of you are interested in doing research and machine learning. But by the conclusion of this class, I hope that um, all of you will actually be well qualified to start doing research in machine learning. Okay. Um, so let's say a few words about logistics. Um, the prerequisites of this class are written on, the, on, on the, uh, one of the handouts um, are as follows. In this class, I'm going to assume that all of you have sort of basic knowledge of uh, computer science and um, basic knowledge of the basic computer skills and principles. So I assume all of you know what big O notation is, that all of you know about sort of data structures like queues, stacks, binary trees, and that all of you know enough programming skills to write, you know, like write a simple computer program. Um, and it turns out that um, most of this class will not be very programming intensive, although we will do some programming mostly in either MATLAB or Octave. We'll say a bit more about that later. Um, I also assume familiarity with basic probability and statistics. So most undergraduate statistics class, um, like STAT 116 taught here at Stanford, will be more than enough. I'm going to assume that all of you know what random variables are, that all of you know what expectation is, what the variance of a random variable is. Um, and if, in case for some of you, it's been a while since you've seen some of this material, at some of the uh, discussion sections, we'll actually go over some of the prerequisites um, sort of as a refresher course on the prerequisite class. And I'll say, say a bit more about that later as well. Um, 
lastly, I also assume um, familiarity with basic linear algebra. And again, most undergraduate linear algebra classes are more than enough. So uh, if, if you've taken classes like Math 51, uh, 103, Math 113, or CS205 at Stanford, that would be more than enough. Um, basically, I'm going to assume that all of you know what matrices and vectors are, that you know how to multiply matrices and vectors or multiply matrices and matrices, that you know what a matrix inverse is. Um, if you know what an eigenvector of a matrix is, that'd be even better. But if you don't, if you don't quite know, if you're not quite sure, that's fine too. We'll go over it in the review sections. So, um, there's one more, there are a couple more logistical things I should deal with in this class. Um, one is that, um, as most of you know, CS229 is a televised class. And in fact, I guess many of you are probably watching this you know, at, at, at home on TV. So I'm going to say hi to our home viewers. Um, so earlier this year, I approached SCPD, uh, the, which, which televises these classes, about trying to make a small number of Stanford classes publicly available, of, of posting the videos on the web. Um, and so this year, Stanford is actually starting a small pilot program in which we'll post videos of a small number of classes online, um, sort of on the internet, in a, in a way that makes it publicly accessible to everyone. And I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm very excited about that, because you know, machine learning is cool. Let's get the word out there. Um, one of the consequences of this is that, let's see, so videos or pictures of um, the students in this classroom will not be posted online. So, so your images, so don't worry about you know, being surprised by seeing your own face appear on YouTube one day. Um, but the microphones may pick up your voices. So, um, so, so, so I guess the consequence of that is that, you know, because microphones may pick up your voices, or no matter how irritated you are at me, don't yell out swear words in the middle of class. Um, but, but because there won't be video, you can safely sit there and make faces at me, and, and that won't be shown. Okay. Um, let's see. I also handed out this, um, there were two handouts I hope most of you have. Um, course information handout. So let me just say a few words about parts of these. Um, on the third page, there's a section that says online resources. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, louder? Yeah. Okay. Actually, could you turn up the volume? Testing. Is this better? Uh, testing. Testing. Okay, cool. Thanks. So, um, right, online resources. Uh, the course is the homepage. It's written on the handouts. So I won't write on the on, on the chalkboard. Um, HTTP cs229.stanford.edu. And so, um, when there are homework assignments or things like that, we we usually won't bring. So, if, uh, in the uh, mission of saving trees, we will um, usually not give out many handouts in class. Um, so. Homework assignments, homework solutions will be posted online at the, at the, at the course homepage. Um, as part of this class, I've also written, and I guess I'm also uh, revised every year, a set of fairly detailed lecture notes that cover the technical content of this class. And so um, you go to the course homepage, you also find the detailed lecture notes that sort of cover, you know, that go over in detail all the math and equations and so on that I'll be doing in class. Um, there's also a news group, su.clans.cs229, also written on the handout. Um, this is a news group that's sort of a forum for people in the class to you know, get to know each other and have whatever discussions you want to have amongst yourself. Um, so 
the Coast News Group will not be monitored by the TAs and me, um, but this is a place for you to you know, form study groups or find project partners or discuss homework problems and so on, um, and it's not monitored by the TAs and me. So, so you can also so feel free to talk trash about this class there. Um, um, if you want to contact the teaching staff, please use the email address um, written down here, cs229-qa at cs.stanford.edu. Um, this goes to an account that's read by all the TAs and me. So, so rather than sending us email individually, if you send email to this um, account, it'll actually let us get back to you, um, you know, maximally quickly with answers to your questions. Um, if you're asking questions about homework problems, please say in the subject line which assignment and which question the email refers to, since that will also help us to route your question to the appropriate TA or to me appropriately and uh, get the response back to you quickly. Um, let's see, skipping ahead, let's see, the four homeworks, one midterm, one open and term project. Um, Notice on the honor code. So, one thing that I think will help you to succeed and do well in this class and even help you to enjoy this class more is um, if you form a study group. So maybe start looking around where you're sitting now or, and, and at the end of class today, um, you know, mingle a little bit and get to know your classmates. Um, I strongly encourage you to form study groups and, and sort of have a group of people to study with and, and have a group of uh, your fellow students to talk over these concepts with. Um, you can also post on the class news group if you want to use that to try to form a study group. Um, but some of the problem sets on this, in, in this class are reasonably difficult. Um, people that have taken class before may tell you they were very difficult. Um, and, and just I think, oh, 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 I'll be more fun for you and, and you probably have a better learning experience if you have a small, if, if you form a study group of people to work with. So I definitely encourage you to do that. Um, and just to say a word on the Onico, which is that um, I definitely encourage you to form a study group and work together, discuss homework problems together. Um, but if you discuss homework problems with um, other students, then I'll ask you to um, sort of go home and write down your own solutions independently without referring to notes that were taken in any of your joint study sessions. Um, so in other words, when you turn in a homework problem, what you turn in should be something that was reconstructed you know, independently by yourself and without referring to notes that you took during your study sessions with other people. Okay? And obviously, um, you know, showing your solutions to others or copying other solutions directly is right out. Um, we occasionally also reuse problem set questions from previous years so, so that the problems are a bit more debugged and, and, and work more smoothly. Um, and as a result of that, I also ask you not to look at um, solutions from previous years. And this includes both sort of official solutions that we've given out to previous generations of this class and um, previous solutions that, you know, people that have taken this class in previous years may have written out by themselves, okay? Um, sadly, in this class, there are usually, sadly in previous years, there have often been a few honor code violations in this class. Um, and last year, I think I prosecuted five honor code violations, which I think is a ridiculously large number. And so just don't look at those solutions and, and, and hopefully there'll be zero honor code violations this year. I'd love for that to happen. Um, there's a section here on the late homework policy. If you ever want to hand in the homework late, I'll leave you to read that yourself. Um, we also have a midterm, which, will, which is scheduled for the uh, Thursday, 8th of November at 6 p.m. So please keep that, um, so please keep that evening free. And um, let's see. 
And one more, one, one more administrative thing I want to say is about the class project. Um, so part of the goal of this class is to leave you well equipped to apply machine learning algorithms to a problem or to do research in machine learning. And so as part of this class, I'll ask you to execute a small research project so as, a, as a small term project. Um, and what most students do for this is um, either apply machine learning to a problem that you, know, you find interesting or investigate some aspect of machine learning. Um, so to those of you that are either already doing research or to those of you who are in industry or taking this you know, from, from, from a company, um, one fantastic sort of way to do a class project would be if you apply machine learning algorithms to a problem that you're interested in, um, to a problem that you're already working on, uh, you, whether it be a science research problem or sort of a problem in industry or trying to get a system to work using a learning algorithm. Um, to those of you that are not currently doing research, uh, this especially, um, I, one great way to do a project would be if you um, apply learning algorithms to just pick a problem that you care about, pick a problem that you find interesting, and um, apply learning algorithms to that and play the ideas and see what happens. Um, and let's see. Oh. And the goal of the project should really be for you to um, do a publishable piece of research in machine learning. Okay? Um, and if you go to the course website, um, you actually find a list of the projects that students had done last year. And so I'm holding a list in my hand. You can, you can go, go home later and take a look at it online. But look, reading down this list, I see that last year there were students that um, applied learning algorithms to control a snake robot. Uh, there are a few projects on improving learning algorithms. Um, there's a project on um, flying autonomous aircraft. There was a project actually done by our TA Paul um, on uh, improving computer vision algorithms using machine learning. Uh, there are a couple of projects on Netflix rankings using learning algorithms. Um, a few medical robotics ones on segmenting iota, segmenting pieces of the body using learning algorithms. Um, one on musical instrument detection, another on RNA sequence alignment. Um, I don't know, few algorithms on understanding the brain, neuroscience, uh, actually quite a few projects on neuroscience. A um, couple of projects on understanding fMRI data on brain scans, um, and so on. Uh, on. Another project on market making, so financial trading. There's an interesting project on uh, trying to use learning algorithms to decide what is it that makes a person's face um, you know, physically attractive. Um, there's learning algorithm, optical illusions, and so on. And it goes on. So fun, lots of fun projects. I mean, take a look. Um, then you know, come, come up with your own ideas. But whatever you find cool and interesting, I hope you'll be able to make a learning out, le machine learning project out of it. Yeah, question? Um, oh, yes. Thank you. Right, so um, projects can be done in groups of up to three people. So um, as part of forming study groups, um, you know, or later today as you get to know your classmates, I definitely also encourage you to you know, grab two other people and, and, and form a group of up to three people for your project. Okay? Um, and just start brainstorming ideas for now amongst yourselves. Um, you can also come talk to me or the TAs if, if, if you want to brainstorm ideas with us. Um, okay. So, one more organizational question. Um, I'm curious, how many of you know how, how many of you know MATLAB? Wow, cool, quite a lot. Um, okay, so as part of the um, actually, how many of you know Octave? 
or have used octave. Oh, okay, much smaller number. So as part of this class, um, especially in the homeworks, we'll ask you to implement a few programs, a few machine learning algorithms as, as part of the homeworks. Um, and most of those homeworks will be done in either MATLAB or in Octave, which is sort of a, I don't know, some people call it a free version of MATLAB, um, which is sort of is, sort of isn't. Um, so I guess for those of you that haven't seen MATLAB before, um, and I know most of you have, MATLAB is a programming, I guess, kind of programming language that uh, makes it very easy to write code using matrices, um, to perform, to write code for numerical routines, to move data around, to plot data. Um, and it's sort of an extremely easy to learn tool to use for implementing a lot of learning algorithms. Um, and for those of you, in case some of you want to work, you know, on your own home computer or something, if you don't have a MATLAB license, um, for the purposes of this class, there's also, i just write that down, MATLAB. Um, there's also a software package called Octave that you can download for free off the internet. And it has, you know, somewhat fewer features than MATLAB, but it's free, and for the purposes of this class, it'll, it'll, it'll work for just about everything. Um, so, actually, I, well, so, uh, yeah, just, just a side comment for those of you that haven't seen MATLAB before, I guess. Um, once a, a colleague of mine at a, at a different university, not at Stanford, actually teaches, you know, teaches another machine learning course. Um, he sorted for many years. So one day, um, he was in his office, and an old student of his from like 10 years ago came into his office, and he said, oh, professor, professor, um, thank you so much for your machine learning class. I learned so much from it. Um, there's a stuff that I learned in your class that I now use every day, and it's helped me make lots of money, and here's a picture of my, of, of, of my big house. Um, so my friend was very excited. He said, wow, that's great. I'm glad to hear this machine learning stuff is actually useful. So, so what was it that you learned? You know, was it the logistic regression? Was it the uh, PCA? Was it the Bayesian networks? What was it that you learned that was so helpful? And the student said, oh, it's the MATLAB. Um, <laughs> so for those of you that um, don't know MATLAB yet, I, I hope to do learn it. It's not hard. Um, and we'll actually have a short a MATLAB tutorial in one of the uh, discussion sections um, uh, for those of you that don't know it. Um, okay, the very last piece of logistical thing is the uh, discussion sections. Um, so discussion sections uh, will be taught by the TAs and uh, attendance at discussion sections is optional, um, although the, the, they'll, they'll also be recorded and televised. Um, and we'll use the discussion sections mainly for two things. Um, for the next two or three weeks, we'll use the discussion sections to go over the prerequisites um, to this class. Or if some of you haven't seen you know, probability or statistics for a while or linear algebra, um, we'll go over those in the discussion sections as a, as a refresher for those of you that want one. Um, later in this quarter, we'll also use the discussion sections to go over extensions to the material that I'm teaching in the main lecture. So, so machine learning is a huge field, and there are a few extensions that we really wanted to teach but didn't have time in the main lectures for. Um, so later this quarter, we'll use the discussion sections to talk about things like convex optimization, um, to talk a bit about hidden Markov models, which is a type of machine learning algorithm for modeling time series, and a few other things. So extensions to the materials that I'll be covering in the main lectures. Um, and attendance at, at, at the discussion sections is optional. Okay, so that was all I had um, 
from logistics. Um, before I move on to start talking a bit about machine learning, let me check what questions you have. Let's see, right. So I would, um, so the policy as a policy has been that you're welcome to use R, but um, I would strongly advise against it, mainly because in the last problem set, we actually supply some code that will run in MATLAB and Octave, but that would be somewhat difficult for you to translate, but that would be somewhat painful for you to translate into R yourself. So for the early assignments, if you, if you want to submit a solution in R, that's fine. But um, I, I, I think MATLAB is actually totally worth learning. I, I, I actually, I know R and MATLAB, and I personally end up using MATLAB quite a bit more often for, for various reasons. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so for the term project, you're welcome to do it in smaller groups of three. Uh, you're welcome to do it by yourself or in groups of two. Um, grading is the same regardless of the group size. So with a, with a larger group, you probably, I, I, I recommend trying to form a team, but it's actually certainly fine to do it in a smaller group if you want. So let's see, there is no C programming in this class other than any that you may choose to do yourself in your project. Um, so, so all the homeworks can be done in MATLAB or Octave and um, uh, let's see, and, and I guess the programming prerequisites is more the um, ability to understand big O notation and data and, and knowledge of what a data structure like a linked list or a queue or, or, or a binary tree is, um, more so than you know, knowledge of C or Java specifically. Looking at the end, uh, end semester project, I mean, what exactly will you be testing over there? What will the grading methodology be? Uh, of the of the project. Yeah. yeah. Let me answer that later. Let me um in in a couple of weeks, I should give out a handout with sort of guidelines for the project. Um, but I think for now, we should think of the goal as being to do um a cool piece of machine learning work that will let you experience you know the joys of machine learning firsthand. Um, and, and really try to think about doing a, a publishable piece of work. Um, so many students will try to build a cool machine learning application. That's probably the most common project. Um, some students will try to develop, will try to improve state-of-the-art machine learning. Some, some of those projects are also very successful, but it's sort of a bit harder to do. And there's also a smaller minority of students that will sometimes try to prove the, um, develop the theory of machine learning further. We try to prove theorems about machine learning. So they're, they're, they're usually great projects of all of those types, uh, with applications of machine learning being the most common. Anything else? Okay, cool. So that was it with logistics. Um, let's talk about learning algorithms. Um, so can I have the uh, laptop display, please? Can I have the projector? Um, uh, um, actually, could you load the big screen? Hmm. Cool. This is, 
amazing customer service. Thank you. Oh, I see. Okay, cool. Um, okay, no, that's fine. Okay. I see. Okay, that's cool. Thanks. Okay, um, big screen isn't working today, but I hope you can read things on the smaller screens out there. Actually, in case you're wondering, I think um, this room just got a new projector that, that I don't know, someone sent you an excited email, uh, was it just on Friday, saying we just got a new projector in this, yeah, and, and they said, with well, a 4,000 to 1 something or other brightness ratio, I don't know. So some, someone was very excited about the new project in this room, but I guess we'll see that, we'll see that in operation on Wednesday. Um, so um, start by talking about what machine learning is. Um, what is. What is machine learning? Here's a, actually, can you, can you, read, can you read the text up there? Can you raise your hand if, if the text on the small screens is legible? Oh, okay, cool, mostly legible. Okay, so I just read it out. Um, so, what is machine learning? Um, way back in about 1959, also Samuel, um, this is a, defined machine learning informally as the field of study that gives computers to learn, um, field of study that gives computers the ability to learn without being explicitly programmed. Um, so, Arthur Samuel, so way back in the history of machine learning, actually um, did something very cool, which was um, he wrote a checkers program, which would play games of checkers against itself. Um, and so because you know, a computer can play thousands of games against itself relatively quickly, um, Arthur Samuel had, had his program play thousands of games against itself. And over time, <laughs> it would start to learn to recognize patterns which led to wins and patterns which led to losses. So over time, we learn things like that, you know, gee, if I get a lot of my pieces taken by the opponent, then I'm more likely to lose than win. Or gee, if I get my pieces into a certain position, then I'm especially likely to win rather than lose. And so over time, Arthur Samuel had a checkers program that would actually learn to play checkers by learning what are the so board positions that are, tend to be associated with wins and what are the board positions that tend to be associated with losses. Um, and way back in, you know, 19, around 1959, the amazing thing about this was that um, his program actually learned to play checkers much better than Arthur Samuel himself could. Right? So even today, there are, there are some people that say, you know, well, computers can't do anything that they're not explicitly programmed to. And Arthur Samuel's checkers program was um, maybe the first, I think, really convincing refuta ref refutation of this claim, um, namely, um, Arthur Samuel managed to write a checkers program that could play checkers much better than he personally could. And, and this is an instance of maybe computers learning to do things that they really were not programmed explicitly to. Um, here's a more recent, a more modern, uh, uh, more formal definition of machine learning uh, due to Tom Mitchell, um, who says that a well-posed learning problem um, is, is defined as follows. She says that, um, a computer program is said to learn from an experience E with respect to some task T and some performance measure P if its performance on T as measured by P improves with experience E. Right? So not only is it a definition, it even rhymes. Um, so for example, in the, in, in the case of checkers, um, the experience E that the program has would be um, you know, the, the experience of playing lots of games of checkers against itself, say. 
the task T will, is, is the task of playing checkers, and the performance measure P will be something like you know, the fraction of games it wins against a certain set of human opponents. And by this definition, we'll say that Arthur Samuel's um, checkers program has learned to play checkers. Okay. So as an overview of what we're going to do in this class, um, this class is sort of organized into four major sections. Um, I'm going to talk about four major topics in this class, the first of which is um, supervised learning. So let me give you an example of that. Um, so suppose you collect a data set of um, housing prices. And one of the TAs, Dan Ramage, actually collected the data set for me last week to, to, to use an example later. Um, but suppose that um, you go to go to collect a bunch, of, collect um, statistics about how much houses cost in a certain geographic area. And Dan, the TA, collected data from housing prices in Portland, Oregon. Um, so what you can do is let's say plot, you know, the square footage of the house against the uh, list price of the house, right? So you can. So you get, you know, so collect data on a bunch of houses. Let's say you get a data set like this with houses of different sizes that, you know, are listed for different amounts of money. Um, now, let's say that I'm trying to sell a house in the same area as Portland, Oregon, was in where the data comes from. Um, let's say I have a house that's, you know, this size in square footage. Um, and I want an algorithm to tell me about how much should I expect my house to sell for. Okay? So there are lots of ways to do this. Um, so, and some of you may have seen elements of, of what I'm about to say before. Um, so one thing you could do is look at this data and maybe fit a straight line to it. And then, you know, if, if this is my house, you may then look at the straight line and predict that my house is going to go for about that much money. Right? Um, and there are other decisions that you can make, which, which we'll talk about later, which is, um, well, what if I don't want to fit a straight line? Maybe I should, I should fit a quadratic function to it. Maybe that fits the data a little bit better. Um, you notice if you do that, the price of my house goes up a bit, so that'd be nice. Um, so, and this sort of learning problem of learning to predict housing prices is an example of what's called a supervised learning problem. Um, and the reason it's called supervised learning is because we're providing the algorithm a data set of a bunch of square footages, a bunch of housing sizes, and as well as sort of the right answer of what the you know, actual prices of a number of houses were. Right? And so we call this supervised learning because we're supervising the algorithm. Or in other words, we're giving the algorithm um, the quote right answer for a number of houses and then we want the algorithm to learn the association between the inputs and the outputs and to sort of give us more of the right answers. Okay? Um, it turns out this particular example that I drew here is an example of something called a regression problem. And um, the term regression so it refers to the fact that the variable you're trying to predict is a continuous value, is a, is a continuous valued price. Um, There's another class of supervised learning problems which we'll talk about, which are classification problems. Um, and so 
in a classification problem, the variable you're trying to predict is discrete rather than continuous. Um, so as, as, as one specific example that um, so actually a standard data set you can download online that I've worked on and that lots of machine learning people have played with. Let's say you collect a data set on uh, breast cancer tumors and you want to know, you know, whether, um, you want to learn the algorithm to predict whether or not a certain tumor is malignant. Malignant is the opposite of benign, right? So malignant means it's a harmful bad tumor. Um, so we collect, you know, some number of features, some number of properties of these tumors and for the sake of, you know, this, uh, for the sake of, so having a simple toy explanation, let's just say that we're going to look at um, the size of the tumor, and depending on the size of the tumor, we'll try to figure out whether or not the tumor is malignant or benign. Um, so tumor is either malignant or benign, and so the variable on the y-axis is either zero or one, and so your data set may look like may look something like that. Right? Um, that's 1 and that's 0. Okay? Um, and so this is an example of a classification problem <laughs> where um, the variable you're trying to predict is discrete values, either 0 or 1. Um, in fact, more generally, <laughs> You know, there'll be many learning problems where um, we'll have more than one input variable, more than one input feature, and use more than one variable to try to predict, say, whether a tumor is malignant or benign. So for example, um, you know, continuing with this, you may instead have a data set that looks like this. I'm going to plot this data set in a slightly different way now. Um, And I'm making this data set look much cleaner than, than it really is in reality for illustration. But okay. Where, um, for example, maybe the crosses indicate malignant tumors and the O's may indicate benign tumors. Right. And so you may have a data set um, comprising patients of different ages and who have different tumor sizes, and um, where a cross indicates a malignant tumor and an O indicates a benign tumor. And you may want an algorithm to learn to predict, given a new patient, whether their tumor is malignant or benign. Right. So for example, um, what a learning algorithm may do is maybe come in and decide that you know, a straight line like that separates the two crosses of tumors really well. And so if you have a new patient whose you know, age and tumor size fall over there, then you may be, the algorithm may predict that the tumor is benign rather than malignant. Okay? So this is just another example of um, another supervised learning problem um, and, and, and another classification problem. And so it turns out that one of the issues to talk about later in this class is um, in this specific example, we're going to try to predict whether a tumor is malignant or benign based on two features, or based on two inputs, namely the age of the patient and the tumor size. Um, turns out that when you look at the real data sets, you find that learning algorithms often use other sets of features. Uh, in, in the breast cancer data example, you also use 
properties of the tumors like um, clump thickness, uniformity of cell size, uniformity of cell shape, marginal adhesion, and so on. So various, various other medical properties. And so, um, and one of the most interesting things we'll talk about later this quarter is um, what if your data doesn't lie in a two-dimensional or three-dimensional or sort of even a finite dimensional space? But is it possible, what if your data actually lies in an infinite dimensional space? Right, I plotted here a two-dimensional space. Um, I can't plot in an infinite dimensional space, right? And so it turns out that um, one of the most successful classes of machine learning algorithms, something called support vector machines, um, actually takes data and works and, and maps data to an infinite dimensional space and then does classification using, you know, not two features like I've done here, but an infinite number of features. And, and that will actually be one of the most fascinating things we talk about when we go deeply into classification algorithms. Um, it's actually an interesting question, right? So think about how do you even represent an infinite dimensional vector, you know, in, in, in computer memory? You don't have an infinite amount of computers. How do you even represent a point that lies in infinite dimensional space? Right? Well, well, we'll talk about that when we get to, um, get to support vector machines, okay? So, um, let's see. Well, so the second of the, um, so that was supervised learning. The second of the uh, four major topics of this class will be learning theory. Um, so I have a friend who teaches math um, at a different university, not at Stanford. And when, when you talk to him about you know, his work and what he's really out to do, um, this friend of mine will He's a math professor, right? This friend of mine will sort of get the look and wonder in his eyes, and he'll tell you about how in his mathematical work, he's, you know, he feels like he's discovering truth and beauty in the universe. And, and, and he says it in sort of a really touching, sincere way. And then he has this, you can see it in his eyes, he has this deep appreciation of you know, the truth and beauty in the universe as revealed to him by the math he does. Um, in this class, I'm not going to do any truth and beauty. Um, <laughs> In this class, I'm going to talk about learning theory um, to try to convey to you an understanding of how and why learning algorithms work um, so that we can apply these learning algorithms uh, as effectively as possible. Um, so for example, we will, it turns out you can prove surprisingly deep theorems on um, when you can guarantee that a learning algorithm will work. Right? So think about learning algorithm for reading zip codes. When can you prove a theorem guaranteeing that the learning algorithm will be at least 99.9% .9 accurate on reading zip codes. This is actually somewhat surprising. We actually proved theorems showing when you can expect that to hold. Um, we also, have, we'll also sort of delve into learning theory to, to try to understand what algorithms can approximate different functions well and when, and um, also try to understand things like um, how much training data do you need? So how many examples of houses do I need in order for your learning algorithm to recognize the pattern uh, between you know the square footage of a house and its housing prices, and this is help us answer questions like um, if you're trying to design a learning algorithm, should you be spending more time collecting more data, or is it the case that you already have enough data and it'd be a waste of time to try to collect more? Okay, so um, I think learning algorithms are a very powerful tool, um, but as I you know walk, walk around sort of industry in Silicon Valley or as I work with various students in CS and outside CS, um, you find that there's often a huge difference between 
how well someone who really understands this stuff can apply a learning algorithm versus someone who, you know, sort of gets it but sort of doesn't. Um, the analogy I like to think of is, is think of if, if imagine you were going to you know, a carpentry school instead of a machine learning class. Right? If you go to a carpentry school, they can give you the tools of carpentry. They give you a hammer, a bunch of nails, a screwdriver, or whatever. Um, but a master carpenter will be able to use those tools far better than most of us in this room. So I know a carpenter can do things with a hammer and nail that I couldn't possibly. Um, and it's actually a little bit like that in machine learning too. Um, one thing that's sadly not taught in many courses on machine learning is how to take the tools of machine learning and really, really apply them well. Um, so in the same way, so the tools of machine learning are, you know, I'll say quite a bit more advanced than the tools of carpentry. Maybe a carpenter will disagree, but so a large part of this tool, a large part of this class will be just giving you the raw tools of machine learning, just the algorithms and so on. Um, but, what I want to, but what I plan to do throughout this entire quarter, not just in the segment of learning theory, but actually as a, as a theme running through everything I do this quarter, will be to try to convey to you um, the skills to really take the learning algorithm ideas and really to get them to work on the problem. Um, it's sort of hard for me to you know, stand here and, and, and say what, how big a deal that is, but when I, when I walk around companies in Silicon Valley, it's completely not uncommon for me to see someone using some machine learning algorithm, um, and then explain to me what they've been doing for the last six months, and I go, oh, gee, you know, it should have been obvious from the start that the last six months you've been wasting your time, right? And, 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 uh, um, and um, so my goal in this class, running through the entire quarter, and not just on learning theory, is actually not only to give you the tools of machine learning, but to um, teach how to use them well. And, and so I've noticed this is something that um, really not many other classes teach. So. Um, and and this, this, um, um, this is something I'm really convinced is a, is a huge deal. And so by the end of this class, I hope you know, all of you will be master competent. I hope all of you will be really good at learning, applying these learning algorithms um, and getting them to work amazingly well on many problems. Okay. Um, let's see. So let's only slice out of all. After learning theory, um, there's another class of learning algorithms that I then want to teach you about. Um, and that's unsupervised learning. So, <coughs> so you recall, right? Well, on, on the, on the um, a little earlier, I drew, a, drew an example like this, right, where you have you know, a couple of features, a couple of input variables, and sort of malignant humans and benign humans or whatever. And that was an example of a supervised learning problem because, you know, the, the, the data you have gives you the right answer for each of your patients. The data tells you this patient is a malignant tumor, this patient is a benign tumor. So it had the right answers and, and you wanted the algorithm to just produce more of the same. Um, in contrast, in an unsupervised learning problem, this is the sort of data you get, okay? where, um, speaking loosely, you're given a data set, and I'm not going to tell you what the right answer is on you know, any of your data. I'm just going to give you a data set, and I'm going to say, would you please find interesting structure in this data for me? So that's the unsupervised learning problem, where you're sort of not given the right answer for everything. Um, so for example, an algorithm may um, find 
structuring the data in the form of the data you know, being partitioned into two clusters. So clustering would be one example, is sort of one example of um, an unsupervised learning problem. Um, so I can see this. It turns out that these sorts of unsupervised learning algorithms are also used for many problems. Um, this is a screenshot, I, this is a picture I got from Suen Lee, who's a, who's a PhD student here, who's applying unsupervised learning algorithms to try to understand gene data. So you know, it's trying to uh, look at genes in individuals and group them into clusters based on, based, on, uh, based on properties of what genes they respond to, based on properties of how the genes respond to different experiments. Um, another interesting application of um, Plus these sorts of clustering algorithms actually image processing. This picture I got from Steve Goulds, who's another PhD student. Um, it turns out what you can do is if you give this sort of data, say an image, to certain unsupervised learning algorithms, they will then learn to group pixels together and say, gee, you know, this set of pixels seem to belong together and that set of pixels seem to belong together. And so um, the images you see on the bottom, I guess you can just barely see them. Uh, yeah. Yeah, let me. So the images you see on the bottom are um, groupings, are what the algorithm has done to group different pixels together. Um, on a small display, it might be easier to just, to just look at the uh, image on the right. The, the two images at the bottom are two sort of identical visualizations of the same grouping of um, the, 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 the pixels into, um, into contiguous regions. Um, and so it turns out that this sort of clustering algorithm, this sort of unsupervised learning algorithm, which sort of learns to group pixels together. Um, it turns out to be useful for many applications in vision, in computer vision image processing. Um, let's show you one example. This is a rather cool one that two students, Arshtar Saxena and Min Sun here did, um, which is given an image like this, right? This is, a, this is actually a picture taken on Stanford campus. Um, you can apply that sort of clustering algorithm and you know, group the picture into regions. Yeah, let me actually blow that up so that you can see it more clearly. Oh, okay. Okay. So in the middle you see uh, the lines sort of grouping the image together, grouping the image into contiguous regions. And what Ashtosh and Min did was they then applied the learning algorithm to say, um, can we take this clustering and use it to build a model, to build a 3D model of the world? Um, and so, using the clustering, they then had a learning algorithm try to learn what the 3D structure of the world looks like so that they could come up with a 3D model that you can sort of fly through. Okay. But many people used to think it's not possible to take a single image and you know, build a 3D model. But uh, using a learning algorithm and that sort of clustering algorithm is the first step. They were able to. I'll just show you one more example. I like this because it's a picture of Stanford, of our beautiful Stanford campus. Um, so again, taking the same sort of clustering algorithms, you can, yeah, you know, taking the same sort of unsupervised learning algorithm, you can group the pixels into different regions, and using that as a pre-processing step, they eventually built 
this sort of 3D model of Stanford campus from a single picture. So you can sort of walk into the scene, look around the campus. Okay. This actually turned out to be a mix of supervised and unsupervised learning, but the uh, unsupervised learning, the sort of clustering, was the first step. Um, so it turns out there are these sorts of unsupervised clustering algorithms are actually routinely used for many different <coughs> tasks. Um, things like organizing computing clusters, um, social network analysis, market segmentation. So if, if, if you're a marketer and you want to divide your, your, your market into different segments or different groups of people to market to them separately. Um, even for uh, astronomical data analysis and, and understanding how galaxies are formed. These are just a, sort of a small sample of the applications of um, unsupervised learning algorithms, of clustering algorithms that, that, that we'll talk about later in this class. Um, just one particularly cool example of an unsupervised learning algorithm that I want to tell you about. Um, and to motivate that, I'm going to tell you about the consider what's called the cocktail party problem, right? which is um, imagine that you have some cocktail party and there are lots of people standing all over. And you know how it is, right? If you're at a large party you know, and everyone's talking, it can be sometimes very hard to hear even the person in front of you. So, so imagine you have a large cocktail party with lots of people. So the problem is, if there are all of these people talking, you know, can you, can you separate out the, 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 the voice of just the person you're interested in talking to, right? Because with, with all this loud background noise. So I should play you, so I should show you a specific example in a second. Um, but, you know, here's a cocktail party um, that's, I guess, rather sparsely attended by just two people. Um, and, um, but what we're going to do is we'll put two microphones in the room, okay? And so, you know, because the microphones are just at slightly different distances to the two people, and the two people may be speaking at slightly different volumes, each microphone will pick up um, an overlapping combination of these two people's voices, but, um, but they are sort of slightly different overlapping voices. So speaker one's voice may be more loud on microphone one, and speaker two's voice may be louder on microphone two, whatever. Um, but the question is, given these microphone recordings, can you separate out the original speaker's voices? So I'm going to play you some audio clips that were collected by, by uh, uh, Taewon Lee at UCSD. Um, let me actually play for you the um, original um, raw microphone recordings from this cocktail party. So this is the um, microphone one. So it's a fascinating cocktail party with people coming from one to ten. <laughs> Uh, this is the second one, microphone. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay. So, remember, in unsupervised learning, we don't know what the right answer is, right? So, what we're going to do is take um, exactly the two microphone recordings you just heard and give it to an unsupervised learning algorithm um, and tell the algorithm, would you please discover structure in the data for me? Or what structure is there in this data? Um, and we actually don't know what the right answer is beginning, uh, offhand. So give this data to an unsupervised learning algorithm. And what the algorithm does in this case, it'll discover that this data can actually be explained by two independent speakers speaking at the same time. And it can further 
um, separate out the two speakers for you. So here's um, output one of the algorithm. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And that was the second output. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco, seis, siete, ocho, nueve, y diez. Okay, and so the algorithm discovers that gee, the best, the structure underlying the data is really that there are two sources of sound, and here they are. Um, show you one more example. This is a, well, this is a second, this is a second, it's a different uh, pair of microphone recordings. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So the poor guy is now the cocktail party where he's talking to his radio. Um, <laughs> one, two, three, the second four, recording. Five, And if you give this data to the same um, unsupervised learning algorithm, the algorithm is actually called independent component analysis, and later in this quarter you'll see why. Um, it then outputs the following. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And that's the second algorithm. So it turns out that um, beyond you know, solving the, the cocktail party problem, this specific class of um, unsupervised learning algorithms are also applied to a bunch of other problems, like in, in text processing or understanding uh, functional brain imaging data, like uh, magnetoencephalography and EEG data. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more when we go and describe ICA, or independent component analysis algorithms, which is what you just saw. Um, and as an aside, you know, this, this this algorithm I just showed you, right, it seems like it must be a pretty complicated algorithm, right? To take these overlapping audio streams and separate them out. It sounds like a pretty complicated thing to do. So you're going to ask, how complicated is it really to implement an algorithm like this? Um, it turns out, if you do it in MATLAB, you can do it in one line of code. Um, so got this from Samuel Wise at Toronto, U of Toronto. And uh, the example I showed you actually used a more complicated ICA algorithm than this. but but nonetheless, you know, I guess this is why um, for this class I'm going to ask you to do so most of your programming in MATLAB and Octave. Because um, uh, if, if, if you try to implement the same algorithm in C or Java or something, uh, you know, I can tell you from personal painful experience, you end up writing pages and pages of code rather than relatively few lines of code. Right? Uh, I should mention that um, it did take researchers you know, many, many years to come up with that one line of code. So, so this is not, not easy. Um, so that was unsupervised learning, and then the last of the four major topics I want to tell you about is um, reinforcement learning. Um, and this refers to problems where um, you don't do one-shot decision-making. Right? So for example, in the uh, supervised learning cancer prediction problem, you, know, you, you have a patient come in, you predict that the cancer is malignant or benign, and then based on your prediction, you know, maybe the patient lives or dies, and then that's it. Right? So you make a decision, and then, and then there's a consequence. You either got it right or wrong. Um, in reinforcement learning problems, you are usually used, asked to make a sequence of decisions over time. So for example, um, this is something that my students and I work on. Um, if I give you the keys to an autonomous helicopter, um, we actually have this helicopter you know, here, here, in, here at Stanford. Um, how do you write a program to make it fly? Right? You notice that if you make a wrong decision on a helicopter, you know, the consequence of crashing it may not happen until much later. And in fact, usually you need to make a whole sequence of bad decisions to crash a helicopter. 
Um, but conversely, you also need to make a whole sequence of good decisions in order to fly a helicopter really well. So um, I'm going to show you some fun videos of, of you know, learning algorithms flying helicopters. Um, this is a video of um, our helicopter at Stanford flying using a controller that was learned using a reinforcement learning algorithm. So this was done on the Stanford football field. We'll zoom out the camera in a second. You still see the trees planted in the sky. So this, so I think this is one of the most um, difficult aerobatic maneuvers flown on any helicopter uh, uh, under computer control. And it was, it was, and this controller, which is very, very hard for a human to sit down and write out, was learned using one of these reinforcement learning algorithms. Um, just a word about that, the, the basic idea behind the reinforcement learning algorithm is this idea of what's called a reward function. Um, one way to think about it is, imagine you're trying to train a dog. Um, so every time your dog does something good, you say, you know, good dog, and you reward the dog. Every time your dog does something bad, you go, bad dog, right? And hopefully over time, your dog will, you know, learn to do the right things to get more of the positive rewards, to get more of the good dogs, and to get fewer of the bad dogs. So the way we teach helicopter to fly, or any of these robots, is sort of the same thing. Um, every time the helicopter crashes, we go bad helicopter. Um, <laughs> and every time it does the right thing, we go good helicopter. And over time, it learns how to control itself so as to get more of these positive rewards. Um, so reinforcement learning is, one of, is, I think of it as a way for you to specify what you want done. So you have to specify what is a good dog and what is a bad dog behavior. And then it's up to the learning algorithm to figure out how to maximize um, yeah, the good dog reward signals and minimize the bad dog punishments. Um, so just to, just to show you, I, it turns out reinforcement learning is applied you know, to other problems in robotics. It's applied to things in web crawling and so on. But it's just cool to show videos. So let me just show a bunch of them. Um, this robot was actually, um, this learning algorithm was actually implemented by our head TA, uh, Zico. Um, of programming a four-legged dog. Um, because Sam's also been, Sam Shriver in this class also worked on the project, and, and Peter Review and uh, uh, Mike, and a few others. Um, but um, I guess this really is a good dog, bad dog, isn't it, since they're a robot dog. Um, second video on the right, um, some of the students, I guess Peter, Zico, Tonka, working on a robotic snake. Um, Again, using learning algorithms to teach a snake robot to climb over obstacles. Um, the low left, this is a kind of fun example. Um, Arshaw Saxena and Jeff Michaels use learning algorithms to teach a car how to drive at you know, reasonably high speeds off-road, um, um, avoiding obstacles. Um, and um, on the lower right, uh, there's a robot programmed by uh, PhD student Yi Rongshen uh, you know, to teach sort of somewhat strangely configured robot, um, how to get on top of an obstacle, how to get over an obstacle. Sorry, I know the video is kind of small. I hope you can sort of see it. Okay, so I think all of these are robots that um, I think are very difficult to hand code a controller for, but using these sorts of learning algorithms, um, you can, in relatively short order, um, get a robot to do you know, often pretty amazing things. Okay, so 
that was most of what I wanted to say today. Just a couple more last things, but um, let me just check what questions you have right now. So um, if there are no questions, let me, I'll just close with two reminders, which are um, after class today, or as you, you know, start to talk about talk with other people in this class, um, we just encourage you again to start to form project partners, uh, to try to find project partners to do your project with. Um, and also, uh, this is a good time to start forming study groups. So either talk to your friends or post in the news group, but just encourage you to try to start to do both of those today. Okay? Form study groups and try to find two other project partners. Um, so thank you. I'm looking forward to teaching this class, and I'll see you uh, in a couple of days. <laughs>